Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 9, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 918. This is God's Word. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha. Arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we look out into the world and we give you thanks for the image in which we've seen this morning that the waters that would come down from the heavens to nourish the earth, we now pray, O Lord, may the waters of your word come down and nourish our soul. And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. If you've worshipped with us any number of times, perhaps a song that you have heard us sing is the hymn, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. It was written by Julia Johnston in 1910, and there's a little bit of discrepancy as to what provoked her hymn writing as it pertains to this particular song. But there is no discrepancy as to what is it that she is writing about, and that is grace. The grace of God that pardons the sins of his people. A grace that covers us. A grace that would take crimson and make white snow. It's that picture that Paul gives to us, isn't it? In Romans chapter 5. That when you and I are honest about things, our sin, so ever before us, seems to increase. And Paul says, yep, And so does the grace of God. Grace, grace. God's grace. Now you might be asking the question, I appreciate, Danny, what you're talking about, yet I did not find that word one time in the text in which you just read. How do we understand grace in light of the encounters, in light of the stories in which we just heard? Well, what... I think Luke is trying to demonstrate to you is to tell you two things 
that the grace of God does and one thing by which it is to be used. So let's look this morning in Acts chapter 9. What is one thing that the grace of God does? Well, in verses 32 to 35 in the healing of Aeneas, what we see is the grace of God brings wholeness. It brings wholeness. It brings wholeness in this life. And so what are we looking at? Well, Luke says that Peter went here and there. Now, if you've been with us as we've been marching verse by verse through Acts, Peter hasn't been on the scene for a little bit. He was on the scene in Samaria when Philip came down and a great work of God was being done through the preaching and teaching and proclamation of the gospel. And Peter and John came down and went throughout the villages of Samaria. And then Luke turned our attention to Saul, often known as Paul. And so what Luke begins here is Peter's here. He's going here and there and among them all. What is it that he's saying? We don't specifically know where here, there, and among them all is. But one thing we know about Peter is he received a great commission, didn't he? Along with other disciples. That is to make disciples of all nations. And when you recognize the ministry of Peter, where does he tend to give most of his focus? In his faithfulness to the great commission, he is going here, there, and among them all. But the all is Israel. He tends to give most of his ministerial time to the country of Israel, not entirely to Jews, although predominantly, and we'll see here shortly that he begins a Gentile ministry, but yet he's still in Israel. It's Paul himself who has most of the Gentile ministry in what we would call Gentile territories, that is outside of Israel. And so Peter being faithful is doing ministry. And he's here in Lydda. It's a, it's a Greek name of the Old Testament city, Lod. One that you probably don't familiarize yourself with often. If you would like to hear about it, you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 11 and Ezra 2. But it's about a day's journey, some 25 miles from Jerusalem. And that's where Peter is. And in a few verses, we'll find out he's in Joppa, which is about 12 miles further. That would be modern-day Tel Aviv. And so here's Peter. He's, he's in Lydda, and he finds a man named Aeneas. We don't know much about Aeneas, do we? But we do know he's been paralyzed for some eight years. He, he cannot move. He cannot walk. He cannot do much for himself. And Peter coming into Lydda finds Aeneas. And what does Peter do? Well, he says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. That story might ring a bell. Maybe you remember that story of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, where friends of a paralyzed man wanting to get him in front of Jesus, did everything they could, coming to a house that was surrounded by people and they could not get him there. They tear a hole into the roof and they lay him down at the feet of Jesus, to which Jesus says to that man, get up and walk. And he is here is saying something similar, isn't he? But yet something so different. You see, what Luke is telling you about Peter is he's not trying to give you any bit of understanding of the piety of Peter. 
He's trying to tell you about the power of Jesus. Peter looks at Aeneas and doesn't say, get up. He says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter recognizes in himself, I have no power. I have no true authority over sin and over this life. It's entirely dependent upon Christ. And so he looks at Aeneas and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Do you see what happens immediately following? And immediately he rose. You know, those are simple words, but consider the picture. You have a man who has not walked in eight years. And Peter says, get up. And he immediately rises. There's no muscle atrophy. Peter's not saying Jesus Christ might heal you. He's not saying later on in the future he will heal you or test the waters and see if it's done. He's not saying talk to John, my assistant, and make a follow-up appointment in four weeks. What does he say? Get up. Rise. There's an instantaneous wholeness that is brought to Aeneas. When Christ extends his grace to people, there's not this picture of you're only half healed. God knows nothing of a partial salvation. He doesn't give you a quarter of it and say, work hard and I'll give you the rest later. He says, get up. And immediately, Aeneas rises It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of grace. When the grace of God enters the life of a person and it brings a full sense of wholeness. And then Peter says something quite interesting. I'm sure parents appreciate Peter's language here. Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. You have a proof text for your children. Make your bed. But have you considered why, why say that? It's an oddity to look at this paralyzed man and say, I want you to rise and I want you to make your bed. Is this meant to be a, a picture, a, a point that says he's mature? Mature people make their bed. It does feel better, doesn't it, after you've made your bed and you come in after a hard day's work? Is that what Peter is trying to say? Actually, I think Dr. Sproul makes an observation that is quite unique. Consider the life of Aeneas. Where does he spend the majority of his entire life? On his bed. He can do nothing. Bed is where he would lay to sleep. Bed is where he would lay to be awake. He cannot walk. He cannot move. Bed is most likely where he would eat. And in fact, in that time period, bed is also his form of transportation. That's what happened in Mark chapter two. This paralyzed man could not make it and nobody carried him just by himself. They had him in his bed and they moved him. And so Peter says, rise and make your bed. It's as though he's saying, you don't need that now. There's something else for you to do. You won't be returning here for a little bit. This place that you have known for the majority of your life, 
is actually only temporary. There is a mission and a work, a calling on your life in which you are to be engaged in. So make your bed and go. Jesus Christ heals you. Now, Peter doesn't say to Aeneas, Jesus has forgiven your sins. You remember that parallel, don't you? Like we've referred to in Mark chapter two, he says, get up, rise, take your mat with you. And then, or before that, he begins with your sins are forgiven, get up and take your mat. And you can imagine the paralyzed man going, I'm, I'm good with number two, I'm not quite certain about what you mean with number one. And what was the whole point of that passage? That there is in a sense in all of us a, a spiritual paralysis. Now, whether or not Aeneas had heard of that story, we don't know. But I think what Peter is saying to him when he says, Jesus Christ heals you, he understands that there's something greater about this one person who is not in the room, who demonstrates an authority and a power in this life far beyond any one man. And so he gets up. But there's something so real about Aeneas, even in our life. Is he altogether different than you and me? Are there not areas of your life in which you are paralyzed? Some of you might be saying, I, I want a better job. I'm not saying that. Just for the sake of argument. I'm single. I've been single for quite some time. I want a spouse. I look at my bank accounts and I don't like where they are. I want a different house. I want children. I want more friends. But what is it? We all have a sense of spiritual paralysis that says when fear creeps in, we want to lie in our bed. We, in fact, would rather stay there than get up and go. We would rather stay still. We would rather somebody come and do everything for us than be called by God to get up and go. We appreciate what it means to be comfortable. In fact, I might even say we prioritize what it means to be comfortable. And Peter says to this man, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up, make your bed, and go. There's a picture that grace brings wholeness to your life. That is not to say it removes all problems in your life, but it provides for you in this life a picture, a calling of what is it that God wants for you. It's a grand reminder that Peter would say Jesus Christ. And it's a greater reminder that we recognize grace because when you see the grace of God being applied, who are we not supposed to be looking at? We're not supposed to be looking at Peter. And so when you read in verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Shara saw him and they returned not to Peter to the Lord. When grace enters into your life, it's always meant to point to another. 
And it's never meant to be pointed at you. It is always to point to Christ himself. And that's all Peter is saying. Do you want to know where your healing, Aeneas, comes from? It's not me. It's Christ himself. It is the grace of God coming into your life and restoring it, bringing a sense of life, vitality, and wholeness. And it has nothing to do with Peter. It has everything to do with Jesus. And the people get it. They see this man walking and they return to the Lord. Grace brings wholeness. It doesn't just bring wholeness. Grace does something else. It also brings life. It brings life. How do we see that? Well, when we're looking in verses 36 through 42, what we understand is Peter's ministering to uh, Aeneas and Lydda and Dorcas or Tabitha. Tabitha is her Hebrew name. Dorcas is her Greek name. We, we hear something happens with her. Peter being 12 miles away is summoned by two people. But what do we know about Dorcas? Well, she was a woman full of good works and acts of charity. We know very little about Dorcas. But what we do know is incredibly significant. What do you know about Dorcas? She is a woman who loved God. She has acts of charity and good works. It's an incredible description, isn't it? Not of a woman, so don't go there, but of a Christian. Why could you say that? Because Luke has already given you a description that sounds a little bit like Dorcas. It came in Acts chapter six, when you learn about deacons and the spiritual office of a deacon. And what we hear, or what we see here with Dorcas is she's doing the same thing. Now, we're not to confuse that to say she is a deacon. That's not at all the point. What Luke is saying is that's what a Christian lives like. Christians are supposed to be known for their acts of kindness and charity. They're supposed to be known for the kind of lives in which they live and, and engage in. This is the picture, if you've been with us on Wednesday night, from the book of James. She loves pure religion that cares for the orphans, that cares for the widows, that cares for the outcasts. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about having a love for all the saints. He does say all for a reason. It's meant to be you don't learn how to love people who are just like you. That's not love, that's easy. That's natural ability. When Paul's talking about love for all the saints, what does he mean? For all the saints. So the people who just came into your mind and you thought, I'm not sure. Yes, that one. Don't look around the room. <laughs> but this is what Peter is saying about Dorcas. Or this is what Luke is saying about Dorcas. And she gets ill and she dies. And they're preparing her body. They bring Peter. We don't know why. Did they, did they want a pastor? Did they think Peter could do something? Well, we don't know. But Peter is summoned by two people and, and he doesn't delay. He comes. And then this powerful picture takes place. He comes 
he enters this upper room with a body of Dorcas his. And what happens when he opens the door? There are all these widows with the tunics that Dorcas made for them. You see, you recognize how significant the life of Dorcas was, don't you? That as soon as she was gone, everyone knew it. There was a dramatic effect on the people when Dorcas was removed from this life. That ought to challenge you right now. Is that true of your life? If you were to be removed, would people know? Is there a dramatic effect because of the gospel work and witness in your life that when something happens to you, there are ripple effects? That's meant to be the church. The church of Jesus Christ ought to bring prosperity and blessing and kindness and goodness to the world. Is that this church, your church, that's your life? Dorcas is a grand reminder of grace. When grace enters your life. But let's move on. What happens? Well, Dorcas is dead. Peter dismisses everyone from the room. And he kneels down and prays. This is very different than the story in which you read about Jesus and Jairus' daughter. Jesus doesn't kneel down and pray. He says, little girl, awake. Peter kneels because Peter's voice means nothing. Nothing without the work of God. And so he gets down. And an interesting fact, Luke has told you about Dorcas, Dorcas, Dorcas. But when Peter kneels down and prays, did you catch what he said? He used her Hebrew name, Tabitha, rise. We don't exactly know why, but could it be because the words of Jesus to Jairus' daughter was Talitha, rise. One letter difference. And Peter says to Tabitha, rise. And you can imagine what happens. Her heart begins to beat. Her, her lungs are swelling up with air. Her eyes open. And Peter's not confident there thinking, I did a good thing. I'm sure he's amazed at what just happened. And she rises up. Now, not different than Aeneas. Peter, when he helps her up, it's a sign of being a gentleman. Ladies, that's what you want, right? You want us to open the door, close the door, help you up, help you down? That's Peter. He's being a gentleman. And he's saying, here, I'll, I'll help you up. And you get this picture, a powerful picture, that here before the people of God is what grace really does. Tabitha was really dead. And she came back to life. That is what union with Christ looks like. You are fully dead. If you are in this room and you know Christ Jesus, it's not because you made a good decision. You made no good decision. You were dead. And you needed the Lord Jesus Christ to put the lung or the air in your lungs and bring you to life. That is grace. Grace that would bring wholeness. 
and grace that brings dead people to life. Dorcas is going to die again, but she is a living reality to every person. This is who God is, and this is what he's like. He cares about life. Now, let me make one comment just in case you engage in some of the controversies over passages like this. When we want to ask the question, Peter healed, can I do the same kind of thing, pray and heal? The answer is no. This is not meant to be some continuation of gifts in which you and I can go into every funeral home and begin praying and people will come to life. Why do you know that? Because when you read about the healings and you read about the resurrections, as it were, in the scripture, it is always associated with an apostle or with Jesus himself. And not only that, they don't do it for everybody. The, the Bible would be much larger if you heard of everyone they ever encountered with a problem. And Paul tells you that. Timothy is sick. And he doesn't just go, I heal you. He does say, drink a little bit of wine. I know that's a little bit controversial depending on what you think, but that is Paul's words. He, he doesn't heal him. He gives him a prescription. So when we think about healings, those ended when the scripture ended. Those were meant to be intentional demonstrations of who is God and what is he like. It's never meant to elevate how good of a Christian you are or how much faith you have. You don't have enough faith. You're not a very good Christian. Me neither. That's the point and picture of grace is that we rely on the grace of God for everything, everything, not just for waking up this morning, not just for singing, but in every aspect of your life, you and I must rely on grace. Grace does two things. It brings wholeness. It brings life. And then there's one more part. Who is grace for? Where is it supposed to go? It's supposed to be extended to everybody, to all people. How do you know that? Because Luke tells you in verse 43, you read it and thought, oh, that's a good transition statement. But what does Luke say? And he stayed in Joppa. He, that is Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. A tanner, that is, for those of you who are hunters, you appreciate tanners. They were those who would deal with the dead animals. They would take the animal skins and they would make leather out of it. So if you have a leather purse and you're against the killing of animals, I don't know how to help you, but, but they do go together. Tanners help you get that leather purse. That's Simon. He's a tanner. He engaged with dead animal hides all the time. And Peter is staying with him many of days. And so is Luke just trying to say, we need to be prepared for what's coming in Acts chapter 10? Or is there something more for us to see? What would it have been like to know Simon? Simon wouldn't have gotten to come to church. You recognize that the laws in that time would have prohibited Simon from being around other Christians. He was perpetually unclean. Jewish people were not allowed to engage with dead animals and dead bodies. That's Simon's livelihood. 
He doesn't get to hang out with his family of believers. He doesn't get to come into worship. He doesn't get to go out and have a good weekend with his friends. He's by himself. He's alone. Because he's an unclean person. And so is Luke just trying to show you something about Simon being unclean or is he trying to teach you something? I think he's telling you something about grace and I think he's telling you what's about to happen to Peter. Peter would have known that. Why is Peter spending time with Simon, this unclean individual? Because I think Peter is beginning to learn what happens when Jesus gets involved in the life of somebody. He does something. He's beginning to understand the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus would go to people into places that nobody else would go. And Peter's starting to taste that life just a little bit. And it's going to explode in front of him as soon as we get into Acts chapter 10. But right here, Peter is staying with an unclean individual. And what are we to know about this? It means that the gospel is not meant to be governed by you or me. We do not determine and decide who gets to hear it. It goes everywhere. And it means everywhere. It means, as you heard prayed, to Russia, to Ukraine, and to every other country and every other corner in creation, the gospel is meant to be extended to all people. You and I never get to decide, no, that person doesn't get to hear it. They have outlived their opportunity to see and hear grace. Luke's been trying to tell you that this entire passage. You see, when Luke talks about Christians, he uses the word disciple over and over and over again. When you get to Antioch, he'll begin to use the word Christian. Do you know what word he doesn't use? Saints. He only uses it four times, once in connection with Paul, once in connection with persecution, and twice here. Why? Because every single person you just encountered in this passage is unclean. None of them are considered by the law holy. You see, that's what saints mean. It means holy one. We don't have a great English word for the Greek there. And so we define it as holy ones. And Luke is trying to say at each point, these people are holy. You don't decide who gets to hear and see the gospel. You go to all places and to all people with the same grace and goodness of Christ Jesus. We do not govern grace. It is meant to be extended to all. It's that repetition. Luke loves that. You remember it in his gospel, Luke chapter 15. Three different parables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And what is he saying? This is the value of people that God redeems. They're valuable. And what is he saying here? Over and over and over again, grace is meant to be demonstrated and shared with everybody. We are to present to them the good news of the gospel to your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, and everyone else. Over and over and over again. Grace restores, brings wholeness, 
It brings life. And therefore, we ought to be agents of it. If you were with us in Sunday school, we talked about that, didn't we? Do you know who would have never made that list? Paul would have never made the list, ever, of someone you would give grace to. And I think he understood it. Because Paul is going to tell you multiple times throughout his epistles, and it gets a little bit more intense each time. He begins by saying, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of grace. He's going to continue, and he's going to say, I'm the least of the apostles. Do you know what he finishes with? I'm the chief of sinners. Now, I need to help you understand that, because you and I like to try to say the same thing. You can't say that. I do not think Paul was just trying to be a metaphorical person here and say, I'm the chief of sinners. I think he was being quite literal. If grace can redeem me, then it can redeem anyone. No one has hated the church more than me. No one has hated Christ more than me. No one has sought to destroy him more than me. And if grace can be shown to me, bring wholeness in my life, bring me from death to life, it is in fact for everybody. And that's the challenge this morning, isn't it? Is that how you view the gospel? Is that how you view people? That you see people who are hostile against the gospel and so you begin to distance yourself from them. I can't be associated with you. You'll bring my reputation down. I don't know what people will think about me. Do we in fact ignore people who we think this person could never be saved? There's no hope for them. And yet Luke is saying, there's always hope if God is the author of salvation. If he is the dispenser of grace, it is meant to be for all people. You see, the truth of the matter is we need to better understand our own hearts. We're not any different than Aeneas or Dorcas or Simon. We would do well to remember that hymn from Isaac Watts. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter in while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? That is to be your reflection and mine. Why was I made to hear your voice when others say no? And the answer is grace. And that is why you finish that hymn saying, send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home that with one voice and heart and soul we would sing your redeeming grace. And that's what I hope you hear from the word of truth this morning. It is meant to go abroad. And if it's going to go abroad, it means you have to go abroad. And I do not mean overseas. I do mean down the hall. I do mean next door. I do mean the next cubicle and every other direction that you can go. That is the gospel going abroad. It is leaving your life and going into the life of someone else. You want to be an agent of grace because you are one who received it.
And if you have received it, there's no way in which you can hold that in. And if you've never heard such a gospel, I want you to hear me say it. Grace can be for you, but you must put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And then you might hear the words, Jesus Christ heals you and he will bring you too as he does all of his children from death to life. That is why we worship because we are people who have received marvelous grace. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we acknowledge the fact that we cannot demand grace. We even want to acknowledge the fact that we're often unclear about what grace is because we don't deserve it. We're people by nature, objects of wrath, dead in sin, paralyzed in heart and soul and mind and needing of wholeness and of life. And so we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only name by which those under heaven might be saved. And we put our hope and our faith in you. I do pray for those who hear my voice this morning that those who would wrestle with different circumstances in their life, whether shameful, whether hard, depressive, or just downright hostile to you, may they hear grace that we are not people who clean ourselves up, but we are cleaned by grace, by the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, help send your victorious word abroad that we would sing your redeeming grace. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.